This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 17. John 17, and we will be looking at the entire chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that we may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. 
For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it. These uh, words of comfort, these words of hope, even as uh, Jesus gave them as he was preparing to depart the world, as he was preparing to suffer and to die and to eventually go uh, to be with you again, uh, where he now is until he will come again. Father, I pray that you would write this hope on our hearts so that whatever we face in this world, we would do so with the knowledge of your truth, the knowledge and hope that comes only in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, in this life, we all face goodbyes. We all face departures. As life goes on, people grow. People change, people move. Heidi and I have, because of developments in life and ministry and schooling and such, we moved something like five or six different times in the last six years. Now, thankfully, we seem done with that. But in the places where we were when it came time to move, there were always these goodbyes in each of those places. There would be those last gatherings, those last precious moments with those that we knew and loved. At least the last time maybe where we would have a particular group of people together this side of heaven, all our friends from a certain area. Maybe you've been through similar things. Some of the most important things that we can say and do to those we know and those we love are in those final moments, the final hours before departure, before everything changes, before we move on to a situation where nothing will be the same again. But we come tonight to the end of Jesus' upper room discourse. This is the last time that Jesus would spend with his disciples gathered together before his death. During this discourse, which began back in chapter 13, we have seen Jesus make many key points that he has wanted to leave with his disciples to prepare them for his departure. He was about to suffer and die. He was about to depart, not only for a few days into death before the resurrection, but he was soon also going to depart into glory. He was going to ascend to the Father. With these realities imminent, Jesus wanted his disciples to be prepared what was to come. He wanted them to be comforted and assured. And so in various ways, at various times, he has encouraged them. He's encouraged them with the reality that he was going to prepare a place for them, that they would be reunited with him. He encouraged them by telling them that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to help them, to illuminate the word to them and to strengthen their faith and to dwell in them. 
He encouraged them by telling them that though they would face persecution and suffering and trials, the victory was ultimately theirs because the victory was ultimately his. Well, the last part of Jesus' words to prepare his disciples for his departure is what we see tonight, this prayer of chapter 17. It's commonly called the high priestly prayer where Jesus, who is the great high priest of his people, prays to the Father, acknowledging how the word and purpose of God has come to pass, praying for his disciples and those who would come to faith in the future. The last moments that Jesus would share with his disciples before his death were precious, and he would spend them in the most important thing, in prayer. And in this prayer, he reveals both his great care and concern for his people, and he also lets them in on what is happening and what is to come. So we will look tonight at Jesus' high priestly prayer in three points. First, we see fulfillment in verses 1 through 5. Jesus prays to the Father, acknowledging that what has been purposed from the beginning is near its end. And second, we see friends in verses 6 through 19. Jesus offers particular prayers for his disciples gathered together that night. And then third, we see the future in verses 20 through 26. Jesus offers more prayers, not just for his disciples, but for all who would come to faith in him after this. He offers prayers for all of his people, all of his church. So fulfillment, friends, and future, those are our points for tonight. First, we look at fulfillment in verses 1 through 5. After Jesus concludes his remarks in chapter 16 on how his disciples ought to have peace in him despite the troubles and tribulations to come, he lifts his eyes to heaven to pray. Now, the very fact that Jesus prays is very theologically significant. It is a very important practical demonstration of the doctrine of the Trinity, the unity of the Godhead, but the distinction of the persons. One of the oldest heresies in the church that still remains popular in many corners today is modalism. Modalism teaches not that there is one God in three persons, but rather that there is one person who is God, who manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at different times. So a typical formulation of modalism would be that God was manifest in the Old Testament as Father, he was manifest in the Gospels as the Son, and he has since been manifest as the Holy Spirit. Now, if that were so, it would make no sense for Jesus to pray. There would be no divine entity other than himself to pray to. Now, modalists try to explain this away. They would say that Jesus just prayed as an example, an illustration, but that falls flat here. Because he is praying things that are true of himself, but would not be true of his followers to pray of themselves. What we see here in this prayer is the Trinitarian communion between the Father and the Son. Now, in Jesus' opening words of this prayer, we see right away things that are true and right concerning him that would not be true of us. He says, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. Throughout John, we have seen this talk of Jesus' hour, the time of his suffering and death. And for the longest time, we saw how it had not come. But then in more recent events, we have seen how it has come. Now, Jesus uses some language to describe this hour that we might find a bit unusual. Particularly that it is glorification. See, Jesus' hour will consist of betrayal. A series of kangaroo trials, beatings, and a bloody, violent death. So it's a bit jarring to hear Jesus speak of these things in terms of glory. He asks the Father to glorify him so that he might glorify his Father. Glory for Jesus is going to come in suffering. Glory to God will come in the most powerful way, in what in the eyes of man and according to man's wisdom would appear to be failure and defeat. Why? This is what we see in verse 2. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So here we start to see the unveiling of some of the terms of the intra-Trinitarian agreements. The intra-Trinitarian covenant, as many theologians describe it, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for the redemption of a people. (coughs) Though externally and visibly, Jesus will look like a criminal being put to death, he will in doing this be asserting his authority over all things and conquering sin and death and redeeming his people. Even the fact that Jesus will suffer and die reflects his authority. You can remember back to John chapter 10 how in his discourse about being the good shepherd, Jesus made it quite clear that he voluntarily laid his life down. He had authority to do that that was given to him by the Father. No one could have killed Jesus if Jesus, who is God the Son and who has all authority, did not permit it to happen. God the Father and God the Son have together with God the Holy Spirit purposed to redeem a people through through Jesus' suffering and death. This was purposed from the beginning. This was purposed from eternity, from beyond and outside of time, though it is worked out in history and in time according to the definite purpose and plans of God. This redemption is for the elect, for as Jesus prays, as many as you have given him. The Father has elected a people for redemption and given them to the Son so that the Son might accomplish their redemption and salvation through his suffering and death. But how is this eternal life to be obtained? Verse 3 tells us, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Salvation comes, in fact, it only comes through the knowledge of God in Christ. Eternal life is only the portion and inheritance of those chosen by the Father and given to the Son and who have this faith worked in them by the Holy Spirit. I've said it. So many times now in the book of John, I will say it again tonight. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no salvation. 
Jesus acknowledges in this prayer that his work on earth is nearing completion. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. As it pertains to his earthly and public ministry, it's over. It's done. He has taught what is true concerning the Father and concerning himself. He has received the glory of God and he has accomplished the salvation of God for his people. These remaining 11 disciples are a testament to this. They will be the ones to continue the work after he is gone. Now he will pray for them in a moment. But first, Jesus closes off this first section by asking the Father, Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In these coming hours of suffering and sorrow and death, Jesus will be most glorified. We also see here Jesus asserting his already existent glory, the very glory of God, which he always had. He had it from the beginning, from eternity, for he had no beginning and he has no end. Now this too is devastating to modalism. God the Son was with the Father in the beginning. It is also devastating to Arianism or subordinationism, another of the oldest heresies in the book that teach that the Son was created or is somehow lesser than God the Father. No, we see here the Son had the glory of the Father in and from the beginning, and he had no beginning and he will have no end. But having prayed concerning himself and the fulfillment of what has been purposed, Jesus now turns to his second concern of this prayer, our second point tonight, his friends in verses 6 through 19. Jesus says that he has manifested God's name to those the Father gave him from out of the world. Particularly, he is speaking concerning his disciples. They are the ones he has chosen. Now he also makes a fascinating comment here. He says they have kept his word. Now we can see frequently throughout the Gospels how the disciples have in fact not kept the word and that they have sinned or that they have been ignorant and misunderstood and misapplied what Jesus had taught them. But the arrangement by which Jesus deals with his disciples is not a works arrangement, it is a faith arrangement. Though they are weak and flawed and failing, the Father has chosen and the Son has taught the disciples, and he has promised the Holy Spirit to them. They are his, and nothing is going to change that. Even the trials of the days and hours ahead, even their falling away will not change that. Jesus has taught them the truth concerning him. They don't fully understand yet, but they will. Throughout this discourse, Jesus has promised the Spirit who would come to them and illuminate his truth to them. Most of all, they believe that which is most important, that Jesus has come from God and God has sent him. As was said in the first point, this is eternal life, to believe in the Father and in Jesus who he sent. The disciples, though weak and failing as they are, they have done that. 
And then in verse 9, Jesus makes a distinction between his disciples and the rest of the world. This is again an outworking of the doctrine of election, of particular redemption. God has not saved all people. He has not yet saved all those he will. The third section of the prayer will get into that. But there are elect and there are the reprobate. Jesus is praying particularly for his disciples. Now, there are aspects of this part of the prayer that extend beyond them to other Christians. But all that said, this prayer is very specifically for Christians. It is not for those who are not Christians. Jesus acknowledges that those that the Father has given him are the fathers in verses 9 and 10. Though the persons of the Trinity are equal in being and power and glory, in the economy of redemption, they fulfill different functions. The Father elects a people for redemption, the Son accomplishes their redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to the elect people. So those whom the Father has elected, He gives to the Son as a reward as an inheritance for completing that work of redemption. Jesus, in the coming hours and days after this prayer, will do what is necessary to accomplish that redemption with the deliberate purpose and intent of redeeming those the Father has elected and given him. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus prays for the preservation of those who are given to him in the world. We know that those who belong to God, those who are elect, are ultimately guarded and kept and preserved unto eternal life. We can remember Jesus teaching again about being the good shepherd from John 10 and how he declared that no one will snatch his sheep out of his or the Father's hand. And yet, as we experience in this world, apostasy is real. People seem to walk with God, but do not persevere to the end. Ultimately, the cause of this is that they never had true faith. They were not truly chosen. But as we see and live it in this world, those we know and love seem to be walking with the Lord, and then they fall away. Just that very night, the disciples had watched Judas depart, and Jesus mentions this again in the prayer. The disciples initially didn't know why Judas left, but they will come to know that Judas left to betray Jesus, and this will lead to his death and condemnation. He has no repentance. He has no hope. Jesus has kept his disciples while he has been in the world, but he is about to not be in the world anymore. So he prays for their preservation. He prays for the Father to guard them and to keep them and preserve them unified together in the faith. And Jesus next prays that his disciples will have joy in the face of hatred and opposition in the world. In verse 13, he prays for their joy to be in him, even as he is leaving and coming to the Father. And he acknowledges again in verse 14 something he has said before, that the world hates them because the world hates him. The result of this decree of election being worked out in the world is that those who are passed by, those who do not belong to God, those who are not chosen in Christ, hate him. 
and hate his people and will not cease to hate and oppose Christ and his church at any contact they make. We've seen this throughout Jesus' ministry, especially in the persecution he has experienced at the hands of the scribes and Pharisees. We've seen it throughout history in all the persecutions and trials of the church. We see it even now as Christianity is now more widely seen in society as evil. People seek to root out and destroy its belief and practice and influence. But in verse 15, Jesus is clear about something he does not pray for. <clears throat> He's clear about something he does not pray for in light of the reality of this resistance and persecution. He does not pray for his disciples to be removed from the world. There is a tendency when Christians face difficulty and persecution to retreat, to withdraw, to try to get away from the difficulty. We've seen throughout history how Christians would do things like go live in monasteries or communes or even just try to live a life in the world that is functionally sequestered from it. No, we are called to live in and be a light in the world. But as verse 16 tells us, though we live in the world, we are not of it. We belong to a different order. We have a different set of interests and priorities, those of our Savior and our Lord. But knowing that they will remain in the world, Jesus prays for his disciples to be kept from the evil one, from Satan and from his works. They're not to run and hide from opposition, but to face it with boldness and confidence. And they will, as the rest of Scripture and history reveals. And then finally, Jesus prays for his disciples' sanctification. Sanctification means to be made holy. One of the blessings that all believers have in Christ's redemption as it is applied by His Holy Spirit is sanctification. More and more in this life we are conformed into the image of Christ so that more and more we put our sin to death and are raised to new obedience. Jesus prays that God will sanctify His disciples even as He is about to leave them. The means by which believers are sanctified as Jesus prays here, is the work of God, particularly the work of the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. The Spirit uses the Word to sanctify God's people. God's people hear the Word and believe it and trust it, and enabled by the Spirit's power, more and more conform their lives to this Word of truth. But then in verse 19, Jesus makes a comment that seems unusual. That he, for the sake of his disciples, sanctifies himself. Now what does this mean? Jesus does not undergo sanctification as we do because Jesus is God and without sin and thus already holy. There is no making Jesus holy. Jesus does not become holy. In fact, some translations here recognizing this, they use instead the word consecrate as it pertains to Jesus, even though it's the same Greek word. Christ will be sanctified. He will be consecrated. He will be made holy as the sacrifice he is about to offer. 
by finishing and fulfilling the perfect obedience in the place of his people. Christ's sanctification, Christ being set apart as a holy and perfect sacrifice, does not make him holy, because he already is, but it makes us holy by his word and spirit and the application of his own righteousness to us. But these things that Jesus has been praying, they don't merely apply to the disciples gathered there that night. And that brings us to our final point. After fulfillment and friends, we see Jesus praying about the future in verses 20 through 26. In verse 20, Jesus says that he does not only pray for his disciples, but for all who will believe him through the disciples' word. Jesus is praying for the church that will continue after he departs into glory and even after his disciples are gone. He prays that they will be one as the Son and Father are one. This is Jesus expressing the the unity and the Catholicity, that is the universality of the church. Now we can look around us and we can see a church situation that is not very unified. There are all different churches, all different denominations. There are other churches that are less pure. There are false churches. There are sects and cults that claim to be a church but demonstrate by their belief and practice and abuse and misuse and neglect of the word that they are not churches at all. But despite all of this, there is a church. And that church is unified in Christ and in his word, that sanctifying word. Though the church is at various times weaker, smaller, more divided, even pressed to the point of nearly being extinguished, there is one church of Christ throughout all ages, across all peoples, Yes, even across denominational lines, to a point. Jesus also prays here that his glory has been given to the church. Now this also might sound strange to us. We can look at who we are and where we are and what we're doing because of how things look and go in this church and as the church fights its warfare against the world. It may not seem like things are very glorious. And yet Christ has given his very glory to the church. The church is the instrument that Christ himself chooses and uses to have his glory shown forth in the form of his word and his ordinances. And it is where the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit goes on. Nobody else, nothing else has that. No one else can claim that. No other collection of people, no nations, no governments, no false religions, nothing else can rightly claim to be the instrument and vessel of Christ's glory in the world. That is ours and ours alone. And what a great comfort that is. Because life in the church often doesn't seem glorious. After all, Jesus' own glory came through his suffering. He's about to be glorified by being slandered and falsely accused and tried and dying on a Roman cross. Sometimes glory isn't very glorious. 
But Christ has given his people, his church, his very glory. And that is great comfort and help and encouragement. And it motivates us to continue in the faith, continue in the church as difficult and messy and unglorious as it can seem. Finally, Jesus prays that those who are given to him may be with him. Jesus is departing into heaven to prepare a place for his people so that where he is, we will be also. That was what he talked about back in the opening of John 14. Jesus will see his people become this church of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all those people together one day will be with him where he is. Though the future in this world will be difficult and full of suffering and persecution and trial and death, we will, as God's people in this world, be in Christ's presence. We will be with him by his word and spirit in his church. And one day as the church triumphant, we will behold him and be with him where he has gone. John wrote this gospel, but he wrote another book. He wrote a few pastoral letters, and then Jesus appeared to him again, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Near the end of that, in chapter 21, in John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he wrote, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle is the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. That's where this is going. That's the glory we only see in flashes and shadows in this world. But one day we will behold. We will dwell where God dwells. We will dwell where Christ is. And all the things that have made this world difficult and painful and sinful and sorrowful will be gone. And so in light of this, Jesus' desire that his people be with him, he one last time declares his knowledge and unity with the Father. And now this knowledge has now been given to his people. It's not merely knowledge in abstract, but knowledge that justifies and sanctifies and glorifies fallen rebel sinners who have been chosen by God for life. It is the very knowledge of God in Christ, the words of the gospel. Jesus has declared them to his disciples. His disciples declared them to others. And they continue to be declared in Christ's church to justify sinners and sanctify Christians, and glorify the church triumphant, where all in Christ will one day be. So at the time of his departure, at the time of his goodbye, Jesus in this prayer unveils some of his greatest, most powerful, most profound words, the most important of truths about him and about us. Perhaps you hear these words of life tonight and for the first time recognize by the Spirit's power that they are for you. If that is you, the call is to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus so that you might receive forgiveness of sins and sanctification 
and eventually glorification, eternal life. For those who are in Christ this evening, these are words of comfort and help as we face a hostile and difficult world. They are a reminder of who we are and more importantly, whose we are. These words are the very glory of God that has been given to us. And we trust in them, be preserved in them until we are glorified in them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word, this word of the gospel, his words by which we are justified and sanctified and will one day be glorified. We thank you for your son, Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for his love and care for us, even as it was expressed that night in this prayer, as he prepared to leave his disciples behind and go and face the suffering and death of the cross. And I pray that all here gathered tonight would believe these words, would have the hope and salvation that comes in Christ alone, that we would be faithful to take these words to a lost and dying world, and that you would guard and preserve and keep us unto everlasting life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.